Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joel Craft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to have you with me another Thursday evening. I am flying solo this evening. In fact, I will have Chris Seibert and Ivan Moore joining me every third Thursday from here on out, at least into the near future. Their schedules have them away. So uh, I am flying solo uh, this evening again. As always, if you have any questions, uh, comments, observations, do not hesitate to email me at jholljmj at yahoo.com. Uh, or you can also go to my website at joholcraft.org. Just hit the contact link there and you can uh, email me there and that would be just fine. I always enjoy your emails, uh, your comments, your observations, uh, getting to know you by way of email. While it might not be uh, John Paul II's vision of uh, personalism, <laughs> you know, that more physical encounter, uh, it certainly uh, gets the conversation started. And uh, I've, I've really enjoyed the many conversations out from this radio program, both locally and, and beyond, um, a few even international um, connections. And so I do appreciate your, your contact. So here we are, Theology of the Body. Uh, we are going through the love that satisfies. Christopher West, the love that satisfies. What this is is a work where Christopher West reflects into the first half of our emeritus Pope Benedict XVI, his work, uh, Deus Caritas S, which again translated is God is love. And the first half of that work takes up the relationship between eros and agape. So we are talking uh, the stuff of love, uh, both human and divine. And uh, this program has been quite popular because the topic of love, I think, is is quite popular. So uh, again, I welcome you and I, I invite you into this reflection. You know, we've already talked about encountering God who is love in, in chapter one. And last week with Ivan and Chris, uh, we had the opportunity to start our discussion on uh, distinguishing true love from its counterfeits. This is uh, chapter two. And so we will pick up where we left off, really. And where we left off is that we realized on our own, <laughs> we don't have what it takes to love each other in a way that corresponds with our heart's desire. And so uh, the man-woman relationship offers an irresistible promise of happiness. But as we talked about lacking God's wine, drawing from that great image of the wedding feast at Cana, it simply cannot deliver. Uh, this is why we need uh, that supernatural drink at the wedding feast in Cana. Uh, and, and this drink is cause for rejoicing, is it not? I mean, Christ came to restore the wine to overflowing in man and women's relationship, to essentially, and I think this is really where our study takes off this evening, to infuse, to infuse Eros with agape, to infuse Eros with agape. So with that, what we will do is turn to 
Christopher West's next quote that he pulls from Benedict's work, and this is from uh, paragraphs three and four. From paragraphs three to four. So this is what Benedict XVI has to say. According to Frederick Nietzsche, Christianity had poisoned Eros. Here, the German philosopher was expressing a widely held perception. Doesn't the church, with all her commandments and prohibitions, turn to bitterness the most precious thing in life? Doesn't she blow the whistle just when the joy which is the Creator's gift offers us a happiness which is itself a certain foretaste of the divine? But is this the case, Benedict asks? Did Christianity really destroy Eros? Benedict asks. So, Nietzsche's opposition to Christian teaching on sexual morality, which, as Pope Benedict observes, a wide swath of humanity shares. And, and Christopher West really uh, says it could be summarized like this. Doing things the moral way throws a wet blanket on the joy of sexual love. Right when one's mind, body, and soul are crying, yes, the church intervenes with their stifling finger-wagging no. In this way, Christianity poisons and destroys erotic love. But let us seek to answer Benedict's question. I mean, is this really the case? Does Christian morality really destroy the joy of erotic love? A puritanical view that often passes for Christianity does. You know, Puritanism is fear-based and it's repressive. An authentic Catholic morality never stems from that uh, fear-based, repressive uh, disposition. I mean, could it be that the church's prohibitions serve not to ruin our fun, but to actually safeguard the hidden treasure of erotic love? I mean, think about that. Could it be that those who hold Nietzsche's view are actually uh, duped by a counterfeit vision of love and are missing out on the real hidden treasure? Nietzsche's view of eros, and again, eros is that uh, human love shared between the sexes, fails to recognize that we have fallen from God's original plan for sex. This is what we talked about last week, huh? As a result of original sin, Eros has been effectively cut off from agape. Blame the apple, they say. No, <laughs> we have free will. We have the gift of freedom. So what's left is not the love that raises us up to the heavens, but it's cheap, debasing, counterfeit. It's lust. You know, last week we were talking about modesty, huh? Modesty as that invitation to love the person for who they are as created in the image and likeness of God, not lusting after the person just for their sexual values. You know, lust flares up in the human heart as an instinct in search of an outlet. As Christopher West talks about it, an itch that needs to be scratched. And he's not far from truth, huh? I mean, many people like Nietzsche tend to think of this as the very nature of eros. But as we talked about last week, Matthew 19, 8, from the beginning, it was not so. 
Before sin, man and woman experienced erotic desire not as a grasping for pleasure, but as an aspiration towards all that is true, good, and beautiful. My friends, they experienced eros as the desire to love as God loves, to live in the mutual and sincere gift of self. Hence, they're both naked and felt no shame. Genesis 2.25, right? I mean, the biblical entrance of shame marks the beginning of lust. This is what we see in Genesis 3.7, of the separation of Eros from Agape. Nietzsche's view, having normalized this fallen experience, and, and we can translate this fallen experience to everybody does it, fails to see that far from poisoning Eros, the church's teaching actually invites us to experience the full dimension of Eros, to allow Eros to be purified by the, by the divine fire of agape, the only love that truly satisfies our hunger, because it is the love that is uncalculated, unreserved, immeasurable, because it's constant in its seeking the will of the good of the other. Constant. So once we understand uh, that eros without agape can never satisfy, then, it is only then we can begin to see that indulging in lust is akin to eating out of a dumpster to satisfy our love hunger. You know, Ivan uh, Moore talked a little bit about this a, a few months ago. Now, why would anyone ever eat scraps of garbage? It's better than starving. And most of us think that the, the dumpster is the only offering, huh? <laughs> we haven't heard or possibly haven't believed the good news of the gospel. And so thinking that garbage is our only hope for a meal, what happens? We grow embittered by the church's prohibition, thou shall not eat out of the dumpster. Christopher West makes that point. I love that. We fail to see that the church's prohibition is simply the prerequisite for entering the mouth-watering banquet for which we are created. You know, I use the word invitation quite a bit as it relates to Christ and his church. And I want to make a comment here because, you know, I have had people tell me, hey, Joe, but it just seems like... The church is coercing and browbeating and like Christopher West said in the beginning, just waving their institutional finger. My friends, when we hear the good news, when we understand the good news as a transforming message and we put it into its proper context, that it transforms body and soul. Oh yes, it is an invitation. But remember that Christ's invitation to accept the gospel comes with that deny self Pick up your cross and follow me. So, my friends, what we are made to see here is that following the true path of Christ, it does not stifle eros. It purifies and redeems it. It does not get in the way of our enjoyment. It actually expands our understanding of joy. You know, last week, uh, towards the conclusion of our program, we were making the point as it relates to joy. We think that uh, Eros is the end game, the sum total, what we're talking about here, huh? Would we see 
that we have actually been endowed with this gift of our sexuality. So as to share in God's very life, remember that most salient point about the sexual urge. It is that raw material for the more authentic love to develop. That raw material that is a gift inscribed into our very maleness and femaleness, if you will. And so when two become one and we experience that consummation, that bliss we experience is actually a participation in the joy of God. When John Paul II says that, it might be the most important thing he says when we put it in the context of what drives us. He goes so far as to say, speaking within the context of the material, earthly, that consummative act might be the most profound joy we experience. This is why we long for it. This is why we seek it out. Again, it does not stifle eros. It purifies and redeems it. Yes, following Christ means refusing to indulge lust. But as John Paul II reminds us in Theology of the Body, only in saying no do we understand the yes. Do we rediscover in what is erotic the true dignity of the gift? Dignity is a very important word for John Paul II. This is the role of the human spirit. If it does not assume this role, John Paul II says, the very attraction of the senses and the passion of the body may stop at mere lust, devoid of ethical value, that there's no value in this act. When as we're talking about, of course, there's the utmost value. If men and women stop here, John Paul II goes on to say they do not experience that fullness of eros, which implies, I love this, one of my favorite lines from Theology of the Body, which implies the upward impulse of the human spirit towards what is true, good, and beautiful. So then what is erotic also becomes true, good, and beautiful. Wow. I remember... I was on my way home from Oxford in uh, England, and I got on the plane from Heathrow Airport to San Francisco. This is about a 12 and a half hour plane trip. I get on the plane, and I sit in the middle of these two gentlemen. The gentleman on my left pulled out some sort of Playboy magazine. The gentleman on my right uh, pulls out uh, his Bible. And here I am in the middle. And the gentleman on my left asked me if I wanted to take a look at the magazine. I think it was a Cosmopolitan or something. I don't know. So this is going to be interesting. This, has, this was at the very beginning of, of the, uh, the flight. <laughs> okay. So with a few naps in between, it was a very long conversation about the very thing we're talking about right now. And I remember the guy on my left looking at me like I was an alien. But in time, he saw that, uh, no, I was very human. <laughs> but this point was at the heart of it. This idea that when we see the fullness of Eros, we see that it is the upward impulse of the human spirit towards what is true, good, and beautiful. And that when we put sacrifice 
before the Eros. Eros has this new life-giving power. When the two become one, two literally become one. It's so deep, so rich. Good stuff. Okay, let us go to this next paragraph of uh, Benedict XVI. This comes to us from paragraph number four, and it reads as follows. The Greeks, not unlike other cultures, considered eros principally as a kind of intoxication, the overpowering of reason by divine madness, which tears man away from his finite existence and enables him in the very process of being overwhelmed by divine power to experience supreme happiness. In the religions, this attitude found expression in fertility cults, part of which was the sacred prostitution which flourished in many temples. Eros was thus celebrated as divine power, as fellowship with the divine. All you have to do is uh, take a look at the modern pornographic world and say, yeah, we are repeating history. You know, Mark Twain once said that history never repeats itself, but it has a rhyme scheme. Uh, this is what we are seeing. You know, I have said in the past, as it relates to pornography, not only in this series on Theology of the Body, but in other nights, um, we have uh, moved beyond just a culture with a problem with pornography. We are a pornoculture where the dollar figures speak for themselves. Uh, and again, you can go to past programs for that, but it's to highlight that uh, ultimately uh, we are repeating history. As Christopher West notes, you know, wherever modern men and women worship, the, the mall, the TV, the computer, the movie theater, the sports stadium, the temple prostitutes, they are there to seduce us with offers of supreme happiness. Sex has become the modern world's religion. It's anywhere and everywhere. This is why this study is so important. We need to rediscover God's plan for us in light of who we are as male and female. And as it was once said, I believe by Janet Smith, in recognizing the distortions of sex in our modern world, we mustn't throw out the baby with the bathwater. You know, there is an, an important element of truth behind uh, our society's idolatrous obsession with sex. Behind every false god, we discover our desire for the true god, gone awry. The sexual confusion so prevalent in our world, in our own hearts, is simply the human desire for heaven gone berserk. As Chris Seibert noted last week, just a twisted version. If we untwist the distortions, we discover the astounding glory of human sexuality in the divine plan. For this reason, the two become one flesh. For this reason, what do we mean to say when we say, for this reason? For what reason? To reveal, proclaim, and anticipate the eternal union of Christ and the church. That model of bridegroom and bride must always be put in the middle of this conversation of theology of the body because it is there where we begin to understand the meaning of true love, true love that is anchored in sacrifice, true love that is anchored in the gift of self, true love that is 
constantly seeking ways to give of him or herself away. It is not this self-getting, self-absorbing, me, myself, and I. And again, who has Christ given himself away to? But the church, the body of Christ. And he does so in the sacramental identity of the church, right? Blood and water pour forth from his side. And what comes forth from the side is his bride, the church. Just as Eve came from the side of Adam, so the new Eve, the new bride, comes from the side of the groom, Christ. Mystical. But I think it's something we can wrap our heads around. Because when we receive, when we receive baptism and incorporate it into the very body of Christ, and then also we receive the Eucharist, what are we doing? We're entering into this nuptial relationship with God. We're entering into God's very life. If you are a non-Catholic and you're listening to this program, what is baptism, right? But new life in you. That is about relationship, right? That's a new bond. What defines that new bond? Well, what do we receive in baptism? But the virtues of faith, hope, and love. These virtues that set us apart. These virtues that are etched unto our very souls. Uh, faith, hope, and love are these moral virtues that draw us into this uh, living, vibrant relationship with God. We don't have the time now to get into those three virtues I have on other programs. But again, when we understand prayer as conversation with God, then faith, hope, and love enlivens that conversation and ultimately draws us deeper into this nuptial meaning of of bridegroom and bride that seemingly is is the archetype imagery, archetype analogy uh, given to us in sacred scripture. And of course, the Eucharist, the Eucharist gives a new meaning to what nuptial means to becoming one. So the passionate union of man and woman in God's plan is meant to be what then? An icon, an earthly sign that points us beyond itself to our eternal destiny of union with God. But what happens? We lose sight of this, right? We lose sight of our destiny. And when we lose sight of union with God as our ultimate fulfillment, we begin to pin all hopes for happiness on what the earthly image the icon then degenerates into an idol, and we come to worship sex itself. That's Christopher West. I love that. The icon then degenerates into an idol. We come to worship sex itself. You know, sin involves confusing our desire for the infinite with finite things. We can define sin in many ways. Yes, sin is disobedience, but it is the confusion between the infinite and finite. So, sexual union, as beautiful and joyous as it is meant to be in God's plan, always remains a finite thing. It can never satisfy our desire for the infinite. The best it can be is a foreshadowing, a foretaste of that satisfaction. Hence, what does Jesus tell us in Matthew twenty-two thirty, That when the infinite is granted to us in the resurrection, Men and women will no longer be given in marriage. Christopher West goes on to explain, in other words, you no longer need an icon to point you to heaven when you're in heaven. Uh, this also explains, by the way, uh, why some people remain celibate for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. 
Most people are called to prepare for heaven in and through the sacrament of marriage. But, but Christ calls a small minority of men and women to, uh, as Christopher West puts it, skip the sacrament. And he puts it well, in order to devote all of their hungers and yearnings for love to the marriage that alone can satisfy the marriage of Christ and the church. And when this marriage is lived in the spirit of in the spirit Christ intended, these men and women become a living sign that heaven is for real. The eternal union of Christ and the church is just not an idea, a theory. It is a living reality. And this is why men want to become priests and religious brothers and women want to become religious sisters. Uh, last week, I had Father Jason Clark, our, lo our local pastor, and when he was talking about his discernment story, he was talking about, you know, the, the journey, the step-by-step -step journey, and there was one point that for him it was all crystallized, and he was there at a conference, at a worship conference, and he heard the Holy Spirit say to him, this is all true. Everything you have heard, it's all true. That struck me. And I bring it up now because in light of that, it's all true. It's a living reality for which it is worth selling everything for. The 12 apostles, that everything was right before them. It was a no-brainer. And yet, they still struggle. Right? They had that concupiscent appetite. <laughs> so, Christopher West asks the question, what should I do? when I recognize and live in my desire for the infinite. In seeking God, should I reject finite things? No, no. We have the tendency to do this, but this is a, a classic mistake. The more we live in union with God, even while here on earth, the more all the things of earth, including and perhaps especially the marital embrace, take on their true sacramental nature as foretaste of heaven. My dear friends, as we become more intimately united with Christ, all the pleasures of the earth, rather than, you know, being what we call an occasion for sin, as perhaps they once were, become many icons pointing us to heaven. Even those who choose celibacy for the kingdom, they do not reject their sexuality. They are simply meant to live it out in a different way appreciating God's true plan for it as a foreshadowing of the marriage between Christ and the church. This is why Benedict's reflections on Eros and Agape are meant for all men and women, regardless of their particular state or calling in life. This is rich, rich stuff. But when we sit with this and we think about it, it, I think it really does begin to make sense. And that when we put this deeper understanding of the relationship between Christ and the church, bridegroom and bride, as we've talked about it, all the more uh, does it become coherent and intelligible. Amen. So that's a wrap. I'm looking up at the clock. Um, next week, we will pick up uh, our reflections with Christopher Weston, Benedict XVI, with some with some considerations of Eros in the Old Testament, and that'll that'll get us going there. Let us close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 
Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.